AlienLegacy.html is brought to you by the fine folks at the Cage Club Network. For all things movies, media, music, comics, and more, check out CageClub.me. That's CageClub.me. Hey everybody, I'm Nico. And I'm Kevo. And this is our baby xenomorph. Yeah. <laughs> I'm gonna make that noise a lot. Welcome to MCU. Uh, rollicking start. Welcome to AlienLegacy.html, where we're here to talk about not the Marvel Cinematic Universe for a minute. Not anything Marvel whatsoever, and our first project that we have decided to tackle post any Marvel adaptation is the Alien franchise. The Alien franchise is one that's near and dear to me. It's actually my favorite film franchise of all time, and it's something I didn't come to till much later in life. Growing up, my family went to Walt Disney World a lot, and one of the most popular attractions in Walt Disney world was the great movie ride in mgm studios r.i.p the great movie ride showcased scenes from different famous films that belonged to mgm that disney could bargain for they didn't work too hard to get too many other things in there and the mgm library included some amazing films like the wizard of oz and alien the alien sequence was particularly frightening and as a kid it freaked me out pretty bad bad enough to not watch any of them i think a lot of kids would probably agree with you on that absolutely and then when alien vs predator came out i remember the guy I was seeing at the time we used to like to go to movies to not watch the movie and we saw that and I thought it was okay and then a couple of days later we're at Blockbuster and we decided to rent some movies to not watch and when we went to not watch Alien I found myself saying no put your pants back on I want to watch this weird alien monster man and this lady get away from him so it was a really interesting experience to find that this movie franchise that I had put off for so long would come to mean so much to me later in life Kevo I know that you didn't really have much of a relationship with the alien franchise until you had much of a relationship with me pretty much yeah what was your first alien movie you know funny enough i think i'm realizing for the first time that our first alien movies were one in the same mine was also alien versus predator back in the days of paying attention to cable television watching it when it was played a dozen times a day on hbo you know you just sort of pick pieces of movies up whether you like to or not and i really enjoyed it i loved the protagonist i thought it was interesting interesting. I still found the aliens terrifying and wasn't interested in pursuing it further, so I've never seen the sequel to that, nor had I seen any of the other alien films, but I kind of couldn't avoid them over the last 13 years or so, and I have developed, you know, my own fondness of them, at the very least for the character of Ripley. And I think it's that connection to Ripley that makes the alien franchise so special. Ripley represents a refusal to give up. She is the embodiment of the flame of the human spirit. She can't be stopped and she'll do whatever it takes to survive to protect her people. I one time made a joke that the Alien film franchise is really just two women trying to do right by their species. And I think I stand by that. 
I'm really excited to talk about these films, but of course, there would be no way to talk about Alien without talking about some of the people that worked on it behind the scenes. Of course, it's easy to identify Sigourney Weaver as the face of Alien, and later on, Michael Fassbender as the face of the secondary Alien generation of films, but truly, the people responsible for shaping Alien in so many ways are the hands behind the pen and cameras. Each one of the Alien films for the first four were written and directed by different creators than the film before. It's hard not to talk about that disconnect in many ways, because as we're going to find with Alien, the original iteration, Starbeast, was a very different creature when it was by Dan O'Bannon and Ronald Schussett than the film Alien, which we got from Ridley Scott. You know, I did my usual Kevo BTS looking into all of those fun things, and yeah, you know, it's it's... I was really fascinated by a lot of the origins of this film and by the fact that we wouldn't have the movie Alien if it was not for Dan O'Bannon making a sci-fi comedy with John Carpenter. I'm sorry, what? It was after co-writing and co-starring in the 1974 sci-fi comedy film that was directed by John Carpenter, who also did the music for it, that Dan O'Bannon was first contacted by writing partner Ron Shusset. Now, I just want to touch on something really quick. So, I have my taste in strange space fair by an O'Bannon. And I believe, Kevo, you also have a favorite space creation by an O'Bannon? Yeah, and I finally learned that Dan O'Bannon and Rockney S. O'Bannon of Farscape, no relation. That's wild to me. I mean, you know, odds are obviously it can happen, but you would think in terms of major notable sci-fi writer names, O'Bannon to be two such cult science fiction franchises that's pretty wild but that is a wonderful conclusive ending to that what decade-long mystery we've shared yeah you know i always just sort of assumed when i saw dan o'bannon but no no such relation so at the time shuset had already been working on what would later become their collaboration total recall and o'bannon had already written 29 pages of a script called memory which was pretty much everything an alien up through landing on the planet's surface he didn't really have a clear idea of who the alien protagonist would be then, but he got called away from their partnership briefly for an incredibly bizarre nexus of creators and a project that never reached fruition, which was the Jodorkowsky adaptation of the novel Dune. Some of the names attached to that have come up before. Obviously, we could not even begin to talk about Alien without discussing the contributions of H.R. Geiger, but I have talked extensively about my love of Mobius over on Exus for Podcast, so I would definitely check that out if you like what you're about to hear. Yeah, because it was on this project that O'Bannon first met Geiger and Mobius and called Geiger's work disturbing, saying he had never seen anything that was quite as horrible and at the same time beautiful as his work, and that is why O'Bannon ended up writing a script about a Geiger monster. He also worked with Mobius on the short story comic The Long Tomorrow in 1975, which was a key visual reference for Ridley Scott in Blade Runner in 1982, and a character design for a probe droid in Empire Strikes Back was copied directly by George Lucas. So even before Alien, O'Bannon and Mobius were inspiring future filmmakers and even one who would end up working on the first Alien film. So after Dune fell apart, O'Bannon was sort of couch surfing with friends for a while, and that's when he and Shuset dusted off the concept for memory and talking about different things they could be doing and Shusit suggested O'Bannon 
using an idea he had for another film about gremlins infiltrating a World War II bomber. Yeah, okay. I can completely see how this movie is the same as that. I'm like barely being sarcastic here. I can absolutely see the threads of that that are kind of Star Beast, that are kind of this, that are sort of the survival horror movie of this set in an industrialized military zone. Oh, totally. O'Bannon himself had said that he didn't steal Alien from anybody. He stole it from everybody. And there are tons of places that he and Shuset drew inspiration for the films from all different ideas mixed together. The idea of professional men being pursued by a deadly alien creature through a claustrophobic environment came from The Thing from Another World in 1955. They drew influences from Forbidden Planet, Planet of the Vampires, even literature. The short story Junkyard was an inspiration in terms of crew landing on an asteroid and discovering a chamber full of eggs. And I think that's one of the reasons that Alien has become so iconic. So many of the things it borrowed from, it paid such loving tribute and homage to that those visuals became so iconic. And I don't want to jump ahead, but when I think about Alien, one of the most copied scenes I can think of is the acid eating through the hull. Yeah. People chasing through a ship to try and find this thing that's getting ahead of them. Absolutely. And Alien did it so well with its contrast of hard chrome metal and dark corners and all of those incredibly white doors with minimalist red on them. It's very Resident Evil in that regard. And there's such a huge juxtaposition in the set between the gritty work areas and the practically pristine health and living areas. A million percent. It's such a complex narrative. And you know, it's funny to talk again about the things that they were inspired by when they were pitching the film to several studios. They referred to it as Jaws in Space. And in that regard, the ship almost being a character is very similar as well to Jaws. I can see the iconography they're going for. One of the things that the alien can do is open its mouth very wide. And I don't mean that foolishly. I mean, it's very shark-like. It's generally a big head, kind of like a shark with that big fucking face. And there is something very shark-like to the idea of the alien. And yeah, I could see this as Jedi Jaws. I completely could. And you know what's funny? Even human inspiration was drawn for the film. Dan O'Bannon has said that the chestburster scene was inspired by his experience dealing with Crohn's disease. That was actually what killed him in 2009. Which that is really, as somebody who has never made a secret of grappling with chronic illness throughout his life, I know the pain he is talking about. And man, it is incredible to take chronic pain and transform it into something powerful and making Ripley able to survive this process to be able to make it to the end of the film. It gives you the idea that there is hope to escape pain. And I think that is one of the very human threads that makes aliens so powerful. And specifically human, if I may introduce a concept that you were the one to introduce me to in the first place. The alien script was written as gender neutral as possible with the ability for any role to be cast as any gender. It was Ridley Scott ultimately who decided that Ripley should be female. But at the time that it was written, any of the characters could have gone either way. And I think there's magic that comes across in every layer of what you just said, because for all intents and purposes, it's not a stretch to understand that much of Alien is a metaphor for male rape and this idea of a powerful, yonic figure overtaking masculinity and forcing its apparatus into them and forcing men to, in a sense, give birth. There's something very powerful about that. And if you were to switch the genders for any reason, let's say you decided 
to make Ripley male and Ash female. That would still work in the context of this film as it progresses. There would still be a very strong sense of male violation to it, and it doesn't suffer for not having it. It's such a complex net of human emotion and human experience that Ridley Scott was able to drive home with his use of sound, space, extended silence. Even the hiring of Ridley Scott as the director, it was sort of kismet. They had met with several directors, and even though things were contentious between the original writers, Dan O'Bannon and Ron Chusette, and the production company that had picked up the film, Brandywine, which consisted of Gordon Carroll, David Geiler, and Walter Hill, even though there were a lot of things they couldn't see eye to eye on on the script, they all completely agreed that many of the directors that they met with, there was a fear that they wouldn't take the film seriously, and instead it would come across as more of a B-movie. And it wasn't until Ridley Scott that they all found someone that they could agree on, which I just think is so honestly fucking bizarre, because so far, Ridley Scott had only had one film so far. His first feature film as a director was a movie called The Duelists that came out in 1977 and set during the Napoleonic Wars. It followed two French hussar officers, is that how you pronounce that? French names. De Hubert, played by Keith Carradine, and Farad, played by Harvey Keitel, whose quarrel over an initially minor incident turns into a bitter extended feud spanning 50 years, interwoven with, you know, the Napoleonic Wars as the backdrop. And like, nothing about that to me really screams alien, sci-fi, anything like that. Originally, his next planned film to produce was going to be an adaptation of Tristan and Isolde, and it wasn't until seeing Star Wars that he even became convinced of the potential large-scale effects-driven films like Star Wars to tell good stories. Even before Alien came across his radar, Ridley Scott was hired to direct the film adaptation of a book called Dune. Ridley Scott was also at one point hired to adapt the same production of Dune that Dan O'Bannon had worked on. Yeah. Are you telling me that Alien appropriated dozens of dudes from a doomed dune? Yes. Dan O'Bannon was going to be on visual effects. H.R. Geiger was going to contribute to set and character design. It was only after realizing that Dune was going to take much more work than he initially imagined, perhaps even years, plus the death of his older brother Frank from cancer, that Scott ultimately pulled out of the project. That absolutely blows my mind on a level that I have trouble explaining. And what's really funny to me too is that I don't think that Ridley Scott really hit any major hits in the next few years after this one either. Blade Runner came to be a cult hit, but at the time, it was an enormous commercial failure. The only other things that he was noted for up through 1985 were the 1984 Apple Macintosh commercial and the movie Legend, which I only just really learned about this week and now desperately need to see because it sounds intense. That is certainly a word you could apply. It's absolutely impossible to discuss the Alien franchise without talking about the impact of H.R. Geiger. Now, as we've already discussed, H.R. Geiger is in many ways responsible for the Xenomorph and all ways that mattered. The design of the Xenomorph was taken from a work by Geiger known as Necronom 4, and it really, there's no way you can look at that piece of art and not immediately recognize the Xenomorph. The Xenomorph itself would see transformations over the years, and they would always credit whatever new version of the Xenomorph they came up with 
to being inspired by the work of H.R. Geiger. Geiger would go on to inspire, I don't know, a zillion creepy goth tattoos. And it's really funny because when you talk about a guy like Geiger, it's hard to not talk about who he's influenced. But one of the most incredible things is that Geiger wished to work with David Lynch very much and once said of David Lynch that Eraserhead was a more fully realized version of Geiger's idealism in art than anything he himself had ever created. So that's like a really cool thing because as we were watching Alien, one of the things Kevo and I noticed in this most recent watch through is that Ridley Scott is able to strike a gorgeous balance of serene, eerie, painful calm that overtakes the scene. And that's something that Lynch mastered, especially in his most recent iteration of Twin Peaks, Twin Peaks The Return. I would love to see a David Lynch alien movie. I imagine it would literally be like a family of xenomorphs in a very suburban nuclear family situation, just like doing housework and cleaning and no one would do anything except like there would inexplicably be a human hula hooping, humming the locomotion in the corner. The original or the 80s version? Both. No, I say both. Well, it's literally Kylie Minogue's face and I don't know, I forget who did the original, so I'm just going to make up that it was Sheena Easton. Probably not, but now it can be. It's just Kylie Minogue and Sheena Easton. Okay, sure. Yeah, she wants to lead that glamorous alien life. Speaking of music and musicians, before we dive into the movie, all I really need to do to hit my trifecta at this point is talk about the composer who I had not realized was someone who is an enormous deal, actually. Jerry Goldsmith, very prolific, highly award-winning composer. He's received 18 Academy Award nominations in his lifetime, but won once for The Omen in 1976, which makes him the most nominated composer to have won only one award. I think you refer to that as a Lucci. Yeah, he Lucci'd. But, you know, I would rather Lucci and be the guy who worked on the music for the first season of The Twilight Zone and movies such as Planet of the Apes, L.A. Confidential, Star Trek The Motion Picture. In fact, he composed for a ton of Star Trek projects, including doing the TV theme for both The Next Generation and Voyager, First Contact, Insurrection, Nemesis, lots of good stuff. Other major works include Gremlins 1 and 2, Total Recall with Dan O'Bannon and Ron Shusett, Basic Instinct, Rudy, Dennis the Menace, Powder, I feel like Powder's come up on this show way too many times, Mulan in 1998, The Mummy in 1999, Soarin' Over California, the Disney California Adventure attraction. He composed the 1997 Universal Studios logo for the studio's 85th anniversary. Keen listeners may recall that Brian Tyler of the MCU did the Centennial update where he retained Goldsmith's classic medley. I love this project. One of the coolest things about HTML is the way that it really does bring together our actual conversations. These little things that pop up and reconnect points that we've brought up before. I just love that. And it turns out his work has been a humongous part of my life and what I think about space. You know how like sometimes when you think about the Wild West, you might hear like, right? You hear certain things when you think about Braveheart, you just sort of hear bagpipes, right? When I think about space, I hear loud orchestral hits and I owe it all to this guy. Yeah. And you know, learning that he did early work on the Twilight Zone really made me understand better his ability to capture that creepy atmosphere and the fact that he's worked so much in sci-fi, so many Star Trek projects. Unfortunately, Jerry Goldsmith passed in 2004. 
His final work was 2003's Looney Tunes Back in Action. That's one of the things that I also love so much about this project. It's really so fascinating to learn these things. I went on and on about this guy. He is only one of five composers to have more than one score featured on the AFI Top 25 Greatest Film Scores of All Time, number 9 and 18 respectively being Chinatown and Planet of the Apes. I didn't recognize any of the other composers' names that have more than one except for John Williams. But like this guy has done so much in his life. And then his last movie was Looney Tunes Back in Action starring Brendan Fraser. It's just, you know, you never know what's going to happen. And it's incredible to think about what his music does. His music makes Alien what it is. There are humongous sections of that film that are dead silent. And if it weren't for the dead silence and atmospheric lighting, I wouldn't be as held in suspense as I am. Then there's other times where the music is absolutely riveting and compelling and it's speed of light violins working overtime to create an atmosphere of fear propelling these people forward toward what for all but one of them is their death. Sorry, I'm trying to stop from laughing because I just realized that two of this guy's last movies in life were Brendan Fraser movies. What was the other one? The Mummy in 1999. Brendan Fraser. Yeah. Okay, but that one's not so bad. That one's The Mummy. I can live with The Mummy. He also did Air Force One though, so baller. I mean, as long as it wasn't like his last movie was bedazzled, I think we can all live with it. Hey, leave bedazzled alone. Okay, fine. The immensity of this franchise can't be overstated. It's not just any franchise about some alien. It's a franchise that has spawned hundreds of comics, countless spin-off video games. As a matter of fact, Ripley's story continues in a rather unusual form with a successful line of video games about her daughter's search to find her in the future, which even led to a movie adaptation of one of the games, which we will be covering down the line. The alien franchise intersects with multiple film franchises as well as this incredible theory out there that the entire Ridley Scott verse is this hyper connected super big scary motherfucker of a universe we're going to be touching on most if not all of this and I really feel like we're off to a good start Kevo you've watched this movie with me I think on my birthday every year for 10 years getting to do this BTS and learning more about what went into creating this movie did it change how you watched it at all no I mean it's a completely fair question but when you asked it I was like he did it no No, it changed how I thought about the movie, but not like the way that I watched it. I was mostly just, you know, engrossed. I was mostly thinking about the movies that are going to come later. We've mentioned a lot of things that are paralleled with Prometheus and even Alien Covenant. There were a lot of things that I was thinking about in terms of how the alien mythology expands and the iconography is used later and it's meant to mirror earlier stuff. And I was thinking about that, but the BTS got me thinking about all the, you know, how bizarrely interwoven some of these people were behind the scenes. I mentioned Jerry Goldsmith being the composer and he would go on to compose for the Rambo franchise, which James Cameron wrote a draft for and he ultimately wrote and directed Alien. It's just the way that all these people were interconnected at this time in such a bizarre way. It's even more tight-knit than I think we have found the Marvel Cinematic Universe to be at times, which 
which is really interesting. I see what you're talking about there because listening to you say that all of these guys were basically just waiting for a project to work on together, it's really fascinating. It's also of note that for a show about diversity, we are covering yet another film that features a minority of women and barely any actors or creators of color. As a matter of fact, between in front of and behind the scenes major players, I would say there is one of color actor and there's two women. Don't get me wrong, Ripley will create ripples that change the way women interact with sci-fi forever. Nice. But at the same time, one strong woman is not enough for me to shake off too much mistreatment. To this day, I don't believe we've had an alien movie written or directed by a woman, and I think considering what this franchise is about, that's some dumb shit right there. Kevo, until we hop aboard the Nostromo and explain to everybody the Geiger life cycle of a xenomorph, where can everybody find you online? You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Kevo Really, K-E-V-O-R-E-A-L-L-Y, and you can also find me on the Facebook page for this lovely program, Husbands Talking More or Less, at Official HTML, although I'm thinking of changing the name to Something Something Explosion. You can also find a lot of the super cool, super fun, super inclusive superhero comics that I produce with our team from Demon Hotel Entertainment over at KidRideComics.com. Nico, where can the folks find you and what you do? You guys can find me all over this amazing network on shows like X's for Podcasts, where we talk about the X-Men comic book franchise and its many different forms. We're doing a time travel journey where we look at the X-Men in the 1980s as they continue their expansion and dominance of the comic book market. And we have a separate feed available on Thursdays talking about Jonathan Hickman's re-emergence of X-Dominance in the form of the Dawn of X. You can also find me on Now and Again talking about pop music with my childhood best friend and on my Instagram at NicoAction, N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. I look forward to seeing all of you guys there. And until then, in space, nobody can hear you sign off of a podcast.